Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. All right, so this week, we're starting a new book. We're starting Bamidbar, which is in the wilderness, and it's the book of Numbers. We wrapped up Leviticus last week, and now we're coming into a new section. So we're going to start reading in Numbers 1. Verse 1 through 4, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they came out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male, head by head, from twenty years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them company by company. And there shall be with you a man from each tribe, each man being the head of the house of his fathers. And now let's jump forward to verse 50, there in chapter in Numbers 1. But appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, and over all its furnishings, and over all that belongs to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings, and they shall take care of it, and shall camp around the tabernacle. When the tabernacle is to set out, the Levites shall take it down, and when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall, shall set it up. And if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. The people of Israel shall pitch their tents by their companies, each man in his own camp, and each man by his own standard. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony, so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. And the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. Thus did the people of Israel, and they did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, The people of Israel shall camp each by his own standard with the banners of their father's houses. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. Okay, so in this passage, what we find is we're in the the second month, first day of the second month of the second year. So the children of Israel have spent 11 months at Sinai now, and during that time they constructed the, the tabernacle, and within the past month, they had erected the tabernacle, consecrated it, anointed the priests, and and they had just celebrated Passover in the wilderness, which was a remembrance of their exodus that had just been one month or one year earlier. And so now the Lord calls for a census to be taken of all the people who are of the age that would go out to the legion, of age 20 to 60. And this is in preparation for moving forward, right? They've been at the they've been at the mountain, but here in three weeks, three weeks from this time, not not in this time, but from the first day of this second month, the children of Israel would set out on their journeys, headed towards the promised land. So God was preparing His children to move forward into something new. And one of the questions that uh, I think is a overarching theme of of today is, what are we preparing for? What, what is it that we're getting geared up to to move into and to move toward? And when I say that, I'm not necessarily talking about Emmaus Road. I'm talking about each of us, right, individually and, of course, in the body collectively, too. But, but the Lord has us. He has a calling for us. And um, we'll get more into that 
probably towards the end, so we'll circle back on uh, numbers one. But for now, they're getting mobilized, getting ready to move forward. God's presence is now dwelling among the children of Israel in a way that it had not dwelled prior to the erection of the tabernacle. Right? God said that his presence would go with them and he would give them rest. Once the tabernacle was erected, the cloud of glory came down on the, tem- on the tabernacle. And now they're getting ready to go forward to inherit the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? Now to do this, to go out and accomplish this, the nation had to be had to be able to be in a place where they could put God at the center of their lives. And that's absolutely critical. And that's where God starts out saying, here's how you're going to camp around the tabernacle. And and in chapter 2 of Numbers, we're not going to read all of this, but he lays out where should all the tribes be camped around around the tabernacle. So on each side, to the north, south, east, and west, you have three tribes of the children of Israel camped. And they're all camped facing towards the tabernacle. If you were thinking about, was God trying to protect his tabernacle? You know, he didn't want any invading armies to come get it. If he were, they wouldn't be camped facing towards the tabernacle. (laughs) They would be needing to look out for the coming armies. But instead, God says, no, here's the secret to your preservation. Here's Here's what you need for a living, is you need to place me at the center. And you need to keep your eyes fixed on me. So you will encamp with all your armies surrounding the tabernacle as close as you can possibly get, right? Facing the tabernacle. Now, but you can't come too close, right? Because the closer you come, the higher degree of sanctity and holiness there is. So God places the Levites between the tribes and and the and the tabernacle. So you have the tabernacle and to the East, where the tabernacle opens up, you have Moses, Aaron, and his two sons. And then to the south, west, and north, you have the three families of the Levites in camp. And then outside of that is where you have the children of Israel. So the Levites were a buffer in a way, and they were also tasked with the really teaching the nation about the ways of God. Okay, And so all of that was built into the very manner in which they would organize their entire camp. There's, I mean, the symbolism there is, is very important, right? And it's important for them. It's important for us, too, because we have to be placing God at the center of our lives. So often in our society, our center is all of our activities and everything that we do. It's like, well, we got our job, we got our kids' programs, we got, you know, any other number of things. And then we say, okay, where can we fit God in? Okay, well, on Saturday mornings or Sunday mornings, we'll, we'll put God in there. And we try to fit him into the orbit. Well, that's backwards. The right way is placing God at the center and then putting everything else in around that. Right? Now, within this aspect of figuring out how is it that we encamp around him? How, as Bobby mentioned as he was saying, you know, how do we do what's right? How do we walk in God's ways? You know, we, we, need, we need help. And so God's given us his word, and he's given us his spirit to lead us and to guide us and to show what us what is right and what is good, how to walk in it. And one of the things that we have to be doing along the way is really clearing the airwaves so that we can make a place for encounter with God. If he's really at the center, 
then we are going to make time for him in the day to meet with him, to pray, to read the word. If he's not at the center, then we're trying to figure out, hey, where can I fit that in every once in a while? I've been forgetting, right? And just so you know, I mean, I've got my own uh, issues with that, right? <laughs> but it's like, what should it look like? Well, our first fruit should go to the Lord of our time, of our money, of of our every thought and being, right? Of what we, what the real work of our hands is. Now, the real work of our hands, right? It's multifaceted. Within going to work, we're ministers in the workplace, even with our clients, with coworkers, anything like that. That's all an opportunity to to share. Not so, not always in words, but just in acts of loving kindness to demonstrate what this compassion and love of our God is. Now as we're approaching Shavuot, right, we are, we're on day 48 of the Omer. You know, uh, it is tomorrow night at sunset, we will enter into Shavuot, okay, Pentecost, the celebration of the giving of the Torah and of the giving of the Spirit, right? And so right there, Shavuot is a time that celebrates God giving us everything we need for life and godliness through his word and through his spirit. Okay, so within this, you know, many times we we talk about the importance of the Torah and the obedience and faithfulness to God and covenant, uh, the importance of keeping his commandments. And, you know, and always within these aspects, we speak of it in terms of really loving God, right? Loving God and loving our neighbors. And what was really impressed on me this week was the importance of the heart and all that we do. In Torah Club, we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount, right? And how Yeshua was giving explanation to the Torah and showing that what is revealed in the Torah must be taken into the heart it must inhabit our souls such that we then live out the words of Torah and live out the weightier matters of Torah, right? which are justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And, and if we don't do that, if all we're doing is carrying out the outward appearances, then we're missing the mark, right? We've got, we've got some right recipe, but we're missing the mark because it has to be an inward transformation. And this has always been the case. Um, I want to go to Ezekiel 36 because the condition of the heart and the guidance of the spirit are of utmost importance. And God, when promising about what he's going to do to restore his people, hits exactly on the heart and the spirit. In Ezekiel 36, 24, he says, I will take you from the nations and, the ga- and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and, shall, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. The Lord is getting down to the very thing that we're talking about. And this promise of what he's going to do. He's going to take his Torah and place it upon our heart and give us a spirit, a renewed spirit, such that we might be free 
from that which enslaves us, sin and death, so that we can live under, under righteousness unto God. Live in righteousness unto God. Now, I felt like it would be good to highlight a few things in the scriptures about how this really has always been the case from the very beginning. In Hosea 6, the scripture talks about how God desires mercy over sacrifice. In 1 Samuel 15, Samuel says to obey is better than to sacrifice. And in Isaiah 29, 13, the lament is that the people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So in each of these aspects, there's an empty observance that the Lord does not accept. He says, that's, you know, the sacrifice and, and, uh, and the other aspects of the Torah, they're important. They're God's word. They're revelations of, of his character, of his nature, of how to approach him, right? But yet, he says, ultimately, I'm going for your heart. And then from your heart, these things will pour out. So, and I, and I wanted to look at one passage specifically because we are talking about the appointed times and about this aspect of empty worship or even like uh, just defiled worship. Isaiah 1, 10 through 17 gives a, a rough picture here. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Now, I wanted to read this passage because in it, with just a simple reading, if we're just kind of picking this out, we can find a lot of confusion in the passage, right? Because here's God saying, why are you bringing offerings into my courts? Why are you celebrating the Sabbath and the new moons and the appointed times? Who's asked you to do this? It's like, um, you did. <laughs> why are you asking me who asked, you to, who asked us to do this? Because he did, but, but what he's saying is, I asked you to do this out of a relationship with me, out of a covenant with me, not just a doing a checklist of things, right? He said, this is to be out of relationship. So you are not in relationship with me because your hands are covered with blood, right? And then at the end of this, he says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil deeds from my sight. So they're they're walking in evil deeds. There's blood on their hands. He says, learn to do good, seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Okay, so are they seeking justice? If they're being told, this is what you... You need to learn to do good. So apparently they're not seeking justice. They're not reproving the ruthless. They're not defending the orphan. And they're not pleading for the widow. So all these things tie into the weightier matters of the Torah of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. 
right? He's saying, if you're not going to stay fixed in this relationship of love and, and uh, well, real intimacy with me, then you're trampling my courts when you try to walk in my ways apart from me. Does that make sense? So in no way was God rebuking observance of Sabbath, of keeping of appointed times, or bringing offerings, anything of that nature. He was rebuking them for the condition of their heart and saying, repent, come back into right relationship with me, and walk in my way. Right? And so this aspect, God doesn't just want observance. He wants the weightier matters of the Torah followed, and that's what Yeshua taught as well in the Sermon on the Mount. And then also in Matthew 23, uh, Yeshua went into several rebukes to those who were keeping up appearances but didn't have the inward transformation, right? He speaks to them about uh, tithing the mill, dent, and cumin, but they've neglected the weightier matters of the Torah. And there's a couple of other verses in this passage where he says, you've cleaned the outside of the cup but inside you're full of robbery and self-indulgence. Rather, you should cleanse the inside of the cup and the and of the dish so that the outside may become clean also, right? So the inward transformation followed by the outward transformation. So it's the same message from the beginning. Yeshua clarified it very well, right? And there was a quote from last week's Torah Club that I thought was important in this. So why was it that Yeshua was so focused on the inward transformation? Right, well, one, I mean, that's, that's the core. That's the heart of Torah. Okay, but in their uh, commentary, they say, Yeshua knew that his disciples needed more than just an external facade of piety and religious behavior if they were going to influence their generation for repentance, reverse the judgment against the nation, and usher in the messianic era. Right? He knew they needed more. Right? That's not in place of the fact that that's really the heart of the Torah, but that's, that's a deeper understanding of saying, this isn't just about you and your walk with God, about the internalization of God's commandment and relationship with Him, but you've got calling and a purpose to go out in. So that is to be a light, one who calls others to repentance, to, to act as a minister of reconciliation, and really to usher in the messianic era. That's a high and lofty calling, but he was preparing them, equipping them for these good works. And in Micah 6.8, this is always a classic verse to go to, he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. This is the, this is the key thing. This is where we start. Okay? And I find interesting in this passage, it begins with saying, he has told you what is good. What has he told you? Right? What is revealed in the scriptures? He has told you what is good through this Torah. So, now we've talked a little bit about the heart, of course, matters. Guidance by the Spirit and the importance of being transformed by the Spirit. And then also creating space to encounter God. And at this time of Shavuot, one of God's appointed times, we're setting aside time to encounter the Lord. So Sunday night we'll have our gathering to celebrate, and then Monday morning, Monday will be a day of rest before the Lord. 
And in history, we've seen we've seen two major movements of the Lord at this appointed time. Right? We saw the giving of the Torah there in the wilderness, and we saw the outpouring of the Spirit there at the temple. And in both cases, the people were called to prepare themselves leading up to it. So in Exodus 19.10, Moses was told to tell the people to sanctify themselves, set themselves apart for the third day to prepare because God on the third day was going to come down. Right. So they immersed and they began preparations. And Yeshua in Acts 1, verses 4 and 5, tells the uh, his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for they will be clothed with power from on high when the Holy Spirit comes. Okay, so in both cases they were told, hey, something is coming, get ready for it, prepare yourselves. All right. And, you know, we're primarily very familiar with the appointed times, you know, in our congregation, but uh, I think it's just important to note, as we mentioned here about Shavuot, we've seen multiple times that God has moved. And Shavuot is the time of covenantal increase and revelation of God, right? Revelation given uh, through his word and by his spirit. And then also, too, you think about the covenantal increase that's taking place because there at Sinai, the children of Israel were becoming a bride, were becoming the, the bride of God as he was entering into covenant with them. And then through Yeshua, with the giving of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's the sign of the renewed covenant, of the new covenant, through Yeshua's blood. So there was an increase there as well, an increase of the kingdom in both cases. Right? All right, so within this, the children of Israel had been on a journey, right? They had been redeemed out of slavery, and they had been brought through the wilderness, tested along the way, and now they were ready to come in and enter, enter into covenant with God. And, and we actually spoke about this at, at Torah Club the other week, but I, I think this is an important thing to, to note. They're entering into covenant with God. Entering into covenant with God is not for the sake of keeping commandments, but it's for the sake of entering into a relationship that is guarded and protected between our sovereign and us. And then within that relationship, there are rules and obligations for both parties. The Torah being the rules and obligations for us, essentially our vows unto the Lord, right, which safeguard and keep the relationship. They don't establish the relationship. They protect the relationship. And so, so now we have a people who has been redeemed. They've been set free from that which would prevent them from coming into relationship with God, actually coming into uh, covenant with God. And now God is continuing to fulfill the promises that he made when the children of Israel were in Egypt. So, from the time of Passover until Pentecost, until Shavuot, there are 50 days. And the scripture says that on the day after the Sabbath following Passover, you'll, you'll begin to count. And you will count 50 days. And on that 50th day, you will have the celebration of Shavuot. And one of the reasons for the counting between the two, as opposed to just giving a separate date for Shavuot, is because Passover and Shavuot go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. I mean, you could have one without the other, 
but it would be incomplete without the other. If God were to give his spirit to a people who were bound to a different master, then they wouldn't actually be free to serve him. If he sets a people free, but then does not bring them into true freedom, then they are lost and orphaned. So what do I mean by that? So the children of Israel were slaves to Egypt, to Pharaoh, and then they were set free. Now free to what? Free to their own desires? Well, we know what our own desires lead us to. (laughs) They lead us to destruction. So God says, no, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I've set you free. And now that I've set you free, I'm going to bring you to myself and I will be your God. And that is what's taking place here at Shavuot. And the promises go back to Exodus 6, 6 through 7 with the four expressions of redemption. God told Moses, say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So within that passage, it was, I shall take you out from under their burdens. I will rescue you. I will redeem you. And I will take you to me for a people and I shall be God to you. Those are the four aspects of redemption that we remember at our Seder, right? The third one, the redemption being the cup that Yeshua said was the covenant in his blood, right? But now here, coming to Sinai, coming to the time of entering into covenant, this is fulfillment of the fourth expression of redemption. Okay, the first three all took place at Passover, but this fourth one, I shall take you to me for a people and I shall be a God to you. That's what's going to happen at Shavuot. So God's intent was to bring a people to himself as a special treasure who would revere him, serve him, honor him, and to be a light to the nations, right? He broke their chains, set them free, so they would no longer be a slave to sin, but that they could become slaves to righteousness, which is what Paul tells us, of course, in Romans 6. Now, God is giving this revelation on Sinai. And and since we are so close to Shavuot, that's really why we're focusing on this today, more so than, than the portion. But I feel like it's important for us to understand the connections between the giving of the Torah, and the giving of the Spirit, and how the covenantal increase is taking place. And within each of these appointed times, God works at various times in history to bring about his purposes of restoration. Right At Passover, there was the exodus from Egypt, and then there was the death and resurrection of Yeshua. Right. In both cases, you have similarities, right? You have the Passover lamb that was slain, and the blood spread on the doorposts and the lentils and the new birth of a nation, right? And then through Yeshua, he metaphorically is the Passover lamb who was slain, right? Such that we could be born into the kingdom of God and be children of God, right? A new life. And then um, we have, uh, of course, the fall feast that we'll talk about another time. But, but God works over and over again in these times. And so then we see in the wilderness, the Torah, in the, well, in the days after the death and resurrection of Yeshua, we see the giving of the Spirit. Now, there's a lot of connection 
between what happened in Acts 2 to what happened in the wilderness. And, and so I want to touch briefly on that. I don't know how briefly. We'll see. But let's go to Exodus 19, 16 through 19. Okay. So the children had prepared themselves. And on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. So that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. As the sound, and as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. So then God spoke the Ten Statements. Right, or the Ten Commandments. And in Exodus 20, verse 18, as God concludes the Ten Statements, the Scripture says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. It had to be a terrifying thing to see the presence of God. And then the Scripture speaks of the thunders, and of the lightnings and the winds and the shaking that was taking place in the midst of all of this. Right? And so those items we'll actually find when we look in Acts 2 at what took place at Pentecost. Now, actually, I can tell you what, before we go there, one note on the scripture there saying that the people saw the voices and the torches. It's always one of the things that makes people say, well, how do you see voices, right? And, and what, what torches, what fire did they see, right? And so in Deuteronomy, Moses spoke about this, about the voice coming out of the fire. In Deuteronomy 4.36, he says, Out of heaven he let you hear his voice, that he might discipline you, and on earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And then in Jeremiah 23.29, the scripture says, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? So when the rabbis took into consideration the Lord speaking, his voice coming out of the fire, and combining this with Jeremiah 23, 29, they taught that this verse meant that just as a hammer, when it hits something, is divided into many sparks, so too every single word that went forth from the Holy One at Sinai split up into 70 tongues. Now, 70. Why 70? Because 70 is the number that represents all the nations of the earth. Okay, because that's, those are the number of nations that were listed in Genesis. Okay, so, so, so 70 tongues of fire, according to the sages, came forth from God when he spoke at Sinai. And it's also according to tradition that when God spoke the, the commandments, when he spoke the Torah, that he spoke it in all 70 languages such that everyone present would hear and understand regardless of where they came from. Now these are traditions that are around the giving of the Torah at Sinai, right? And so when we jump forward to Acts 2, and take a reading of what's taking place here at Pentecost, we're going to we're, we're having a reenactment of Mount Sinai. 
taking place here with the apostles. Now, often when Acts 2 is read, there's an, a thought that, they, that the apostles here are gathered in the upper room. Okay? But it is almost impossible that they're gathered together in an upper room when this, when this takes place. And there's multiple reasons for the, the complications involved with it. One, no, let's, let's just start with kind of a first basic thing. In Acts 1, it does speak about how the, the disciples were gathered together daily. They were praying. They did meet in an upper room. But when chapter 2 comes up, there's no indication that is a connection of they're still in the upper room. And then when we start to read the descriptions of what's taking place, the setting doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Let's start back with what Pentecost is, what Shavuot is. It's one of the appointed times of pilgrimage festival when every male Jew is expected to travel to Jerusalem and to be there for the celebration. And so the place that they're going to be is gathered together at the temple, specifically at the times of prayer. The times of prayer being 9 a.m. and 3 p.m., which are coinciding with the morning and the evening Tamid continual sacrifice. So the ninth, 9 o'clock is the third hour of the day. Okay, The third hour of the day would be when these prayers are done. And so the disciples, being faithful Jews, would have been at the temple for the prayers at that hour. And the scriptures tell us in Luke 24 that the, the disciples were in the temple daily praying. They weren't hiding out. Because sometimes we think, oh, well, they were hiding right after the death of Yeshua. So surely they were still hiding. No, no, the time of hiding was gone. They were out uh, They were out in the temple daily, meeting the, in the portico of Solomon, praying. And so at the time of this holy appointed time, that's the place they should have been. That's the place in all likelihood they would have been. And there's more reasons beyond that, too, but we won't, we won't go into all those. Um, but now, as we begin to read this, uh, we'll see the connections, and uh, we'll point them out as we go along the way. So, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And this verse right here is kind of where people say, oh, well, they must have been in the upper room, because the scripture says that this wind filled the whole house where they were sitting. The only problem is that in Hebrew, the... They were in the house, which is Habait, which is the temple. Okay, It's a common phrase. You'll find it throughout the, the prophets when it says the house. It's speaking about the temple specifically, not just a house. And this here actually says, you know, it, the entire house. This is a specific house, the house being the temple. The, the wind came and filled it. And if you think about the imagery, okay, it was on Mount Sinai that all these things came down. Well, on the Temple Mount, the Mount of the Temple, all these things came down, right? The wind came, and it filled the entire temple where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So here come the 70 flames of fire of the word of the Lord coming down and resting upon them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling, and here again, now 
they're speaking, they're proclaiming about the good news is coming out in every language such that all who are present will hear the good news of the kingdom. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So we have more now. Okay. Uh, and they came together. Actually, no. Hang on. I'm on, I'm on the wrong spot. Um, okay. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were bewildered because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and marveled and said, "Why? Why are not all those? Why, or why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia." And they come forward. I'm not going to read all of them, but they heard them all speaking in their own tongues, speaking of mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another. What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They are full of sweet wine. But Peter, taking a stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to the men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, Let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. What? It's the third hour of the day. Okay, and then the other thing too. If they're in a room and the wind comes and moves in it, how is everyone going to gather like, are they going to be at the temple? Are they going to hear it? Are they going to run to the upper quarter where the upper room would be? That's where upper rooms were. They were rented out in the upper quarter. Okay? No, because it wouldn't have been public. God made the giving of the Holy Spirit public to display his glory, to give a revelation of who he is, and to cause people to say, wait a second, this is unique. What's going on? Tell me. And then Peter begins to stand up and he gives one of the greatest sermons ever, right? Speaking about the goodness of God and the salvation we have through Yeshua. And, and, and then, then 3,000 people were baptized, right? Well, where are the 3,000? Where, where's their capacity for 3,000 people to enter into a mikvah? It's right there at the steps of the temple because all the pilgrims would have had to go through the mikvah to go up to the temple. So really everything within this sets the scene for this to having been at the temple, set in a scene where people could look and say, wait a second, this is really connected to the original Pentecost that occurred in the wilderness. Now, Lord, what are you saying? And the other thing, too, we didn't even get into it, but the other readings that go with the first day of Shavuot are from Ezekiel. When Ezekiel sees the visions in the heavens and he sees the fires flashing and he he has the mighty whirlwind that, that lifts him up. So everyone has just read all these things about Moses and the giving of the Torah. And they've just read about Ezekiel and flashes of fire. And now they see it happening before their eyes. It's going to cause people to come together and say, what's going on? And how come I can understand? So God was revealing this within context. Now, granted, that doesn't mean that everybody got it or was able to connect all the dots right at that point in time. But he's a master story writer. And even if we don't get it the first time, he's going to open our eyes to it as we go along and walk through in his way. Just like when you read the scriptures, there can be times you say, how did I never see that? I don't know how I never saw that, right? He has it ready for us. He'll lead us into that truth, right? So here we have the giving of the Spirit that is poured out because of what Yeshua has done to bring us into a greater relationship with God, 
in, enhancing, really increasing our ability, taking our ability from futile to capable to walk in the ways of God. Um, do we have the microphone? So, this is just kind of a silly little question, but um, so the disciples were speaking in all the tongues, right? Which tongue did they hear that they were speaking in? Which tongue were they trying to speak in? So when they stood up to speak, they would have they would have tried to speak in uh, Hebrew or some people say Jewish Aramaic, right? But the God, but God can actually cause you to speak in other languages, or He can actually cause people to hear in other languages. So they were speaking in their own language, but everyone else heard it as theirs. Is theirs exactly? Yeah. Um, Right, right. Who spoke in which one? Well, I believe what it would be is the same aspect where they spoke and God's spirit gave utterance or opened their ears to be able to hear as though it was their own language so they could hear clearly. Um, There's actually a part in the Torah where uh, the Lord commands the children of Israel to write out on stones that have been plastered the words of the Torah and to write them well clarified. And the sages understand that to have meant they wrote it out in all 70 languages such that anybody who passed by could read and see what the truth and the word of God is. Uh, we have another back here. Oh, there was. Excellent. Uh, uh, Chelsea. I was just going to make a comment. Um, this passage in And my little girl, we could talk about in the beginning, we started in Genesis. I follow the Torah cycle in my class. Uh-huh. I don't make it. In, but, mm. I do. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> but my little, my little ones is like, oh, so it was the opposite of the Tower of Babel. Mm. I was like, yeah, God has created all back together so they yeah. understand each other. Mm. So Amen. That's his previous That was beautiful. That she remembered that. She's like, yeah. oh, she's That is really cool. Yeah. I think it's just so fascinating because if there were 70 tongues there, so 70 nations would have been represented. In my mind, I would have thought it was just like, you know, people who were Jewish or whatever. I wouldn't have thought about all these different people being represented there. Right. Right. Well, now, so there were Jews living throughout all these nations, but who would have been raised in those nations and would be speaking the, the language of those. So, for example, Paul. Uh, was uh, from Tarsus, right? So he was actually born in the diaspora, right? But he, So he would have known Greek and he would have known Hebrew, been fluent in both because he was a citizen of Rome and he was Jewish. But So there were, there were Jews from all these nations who were there present. Now then there also could have been uh, God-fearers from within Israel or among the nations too. And But regardless, wherever they came from, when they heard the message, they heard according to their words. Whether it was all 70 who were there, we don't really know. We just know that the tongues of fire came and rested upon them. And so, and we're likening it to what was understood to have happened at Sinai. Right? It said from all nations under heaven. It, it nations under heaven. So let's go ahead and say it was all 70 then, right? I mean, yeah. So that, that would fit for sure. Yeah, that's cool. And so now here 
at Pentecost, you have the fulfillment of the fourth promise. I will take you to me, and I will be your God. Now, this is interesting. I, I uh, used to write a blog, and I'm letting this blog go away because I haven't touched it for years. So I went out, and I, I took my writings down from it, uh, or like took a copy of them so I wouldn't lose them forever. And as I was going through, I stumbled on this one that I never published. And uh, it's fascinating because in it, I was, I was recounting a dream that I had in June of 2014. And actually, June of 2014, I need to look this up, but it's close to Shavuot. Okay, so I, I want to look it up to find out, was this really around Shavuot or not? But anyway, I had this dream. And uh, so I'll show you here. A man approached me and, and showed me a square track that appeared to be of stone or slate. Across the top was written, God said, I will be. Below it, written in smaller print, was a description of four promises God told Moses to say to the sons of Israel who were about to be delivered from Egypt. Here, you think what those four promises might be? Okay, right? And then, then the man said to me, Yeshua, after he had risen, said, I did. I pondered the meaning and validity of what he said to me. And I realized this was a really cool way to share the gospel. Then I awoke knowing I had just received something significant. That's pretty cool, right? With the tablets written on it, the four promises that were given, and that it, at the top it said, God said, I will be. Well, now this is important. Why did God say, I will be? Well, if you go back to Exodus 3, 14. God said, uh, God said to Moses, Aye, I share Aye, which, is, which means I will be what I will be. It's often translated, I am what I am. But the proper Hebrew uh, translation of this is, I will be what I will be. And, and then he added, here's what, here's what to say to the people of Israel. Aye, I will be, has sent, you, has sent me to you. Okay. So in his name, in God's name, he was stating a promise that he always will be with us and will always be as he he will always act in accordance to his nature and, and to fulfill his promises. And in Exodus 3.17, he said, I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt. And later went on and said the four aspects of redemption. Right? So, so here God redeems the children of Israel from Egypt, brings them out from their slavery, and then brings them to himself at Sinai and enters into covenant. And then many years later, Yeshua redeems all who will come to God from slavery to sin and death. He sets us free and then brings us to him in covenant that we can be his people and walk with him. And so for Yeshua to say, yeah, I did. Amen, right? Because it's through him that we have the ultimate deliverance. We have the ultimate deliverance. And so we have uh, great life and relationship We've been given all that we need for life and godliness through the word that was written on stone, which was a physical manifestation of the word that preexisted with God. And then we have the Torah made flesh in Yeshua, who was the physical manifestation of the word that preexisted with God before all creation. And according to tradition, God looked, the Torah was present with God in the beginning, right? And God looked into the Torah, and from that, created all things that have come into existence. How much does that tie into John 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? And we know that all things came into existence through the Word of God, and that all things hold together through Yeshua, right? 
Praise God. Okay, so as we're getting to, to wrap up here, I, I want to go back to Numbers 1, verses 2 through 3 specifically. And this is, you know, I don't really know how we segue into this. More that God's given us what we need. He's given us a preparation for what lies ahead. We're about to celebrate that revelation, that transformation. And that's going to be joyous, right? God says you shall rejoice in your festivals. So let's have a good time. All right, so Numbers 1, 2 through 3 says, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male head by head, from 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war. You and Aaron shall list them company by company. Now, when we stay here for just a second, um, if we stay on that for a second, we've got... Actually, you know what? This is the thing with uh, translations. Okay, take a census. Here we go. I do better if I have the other in front of me, but this is okay. Take a census. In Hebrew, specifically says, lift up the heads. Lift up the heads of all the congregation of the people of Israel. Okay? And then when it goes on and says, uh, listing them, it's actually, it's actually talking about counting. So you get lifting up the heads and count them, right? And if we were to look over in Numbers 149 through 50, we actually have some interesting things take place because a similar thing is said for the Levites about uh, lifting up and counting. And then in the next verse, it, speaks, it uses the same verb, but the same verbs are translated differently, okay? So in one place, it's like, you shall count them, and the other one it says, you shall lift them up. And the other one it says, you shall count them. And then it, the next time it means, you shall appoint them. Okay? So what, what we're going to talk about in this is that when God was saying to lift up the heads of all the congregation of the people of Israel, he was saying, take all those who are downcast, lift up their heads, give them hope, and tell them they matter because I take count of them. Right, just as how God knows every hair that is on our head, right? He was saying, count everyone because they're all important. Sure, they're not they're not the Levites or the priest, but they matter. And not only are we going to count them, not only are we going to lift their heads up, but we're going to appoint them. And we're going to give them purpose and we're going to send them out on a mission. Okay, so they were the downcast were lifted up, given dignity and purpose, so they can make a, an impact, right? Now, here in the wilderness, he was counting up the legion because they were getting ready to leave Sinai and they were going to be headed towards the promised land. And in the promised land, God knew that there were giants. He knew that there were fortified cities, right? But he was sending them out for a takeover, right? They were getting ready to go. They were going on a conquering mission. And I love something I heard Lou Engle say when he was talking about, uh, about the return of Yeshua. He said, he actually thinks he's going to rule the world. <laughs> he does. He's, he's on a takeover mission, right? And so here God is spreading his kingdom on the earth and fulfilling his promises and sending out his children on a takeover mission. Their heads have been lifted up. They've been appointed to his work, and soon they're going to go and take hold of it. The question is, would his children do it, right? Now, we know that they're going to fall when they send the spies into the land, right? 
But God, that nevertheless, God had said, okay, I'm going to redeem the land. Righteous, righteousness will dwell in it, and the bride will have her inheritance. I'm preparing you. I'm going to send you out. Will you go? And I wonder how different our situation is today, right? Because the land will be redeemed. Righteousness will dwell in it. And God's bride will have her inheritance, right? We do this all in partnership with them, being equipped such that we can actually go out, transform the world, cause people to hear the truth, repent, and have the messianic kingdom ushered in. We've been lifted up out of death, given new life, and we've been, we've, we've, our heads have been lifted, and we've been appointed as ministers of reconciliation, right? So now we've been called to go out and do it. And now we could say, well, should we, should we cry out that it be soon that we're sent out to go take hold of it? It's like, well, yes and no, because the kingdom is here now, and we've already been given, given the calling, calling to go out and do it, right? And the kingdom is yet more to come. Right? We've been called to go and lay hold of it. And it's our job to take hold and say, yes, we will do it. Just as the children of Israel have said, we will do all that the Lord asks. Right? And of course, Yeshua gives us that perfect example. He said, my food is to do the will of the Father who sent me. And that's our food, is to do the will of the Father who sent us. To love justice, mercy, righteousness, and to seek him. And so I wanted to read one more thing with the lifting up of the heads from Psalm 24, 9 through 10. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Amen. So let's prepare ourselves for tomorrow night, right? When we celebrate Shavuot, celebrate and make room for our coming King and enter into greater revelation and covenantal increase in our walk with Him. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us your appointed times for, for gladness. Thank you, Lord, that you have been on a mission to restore and to redeem. And we thank you for the life that we have in you. We thank you for the revelations that you have given us of your word and of your spirit. Lord, may we fix our eyes on you. May we set our camp continually directed toward you, that you would be the center of our lives, the center of our congregation the center of our thoughts, Lord, and then that we would be the hands and feet who go out loving one another and others from the heart, Lord, a true transformation. Lord, help us to internalize it. Renew us by your spirit and walk with us all these days. We bless you in the name of Yeshua. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas.